going through this and feeling calm and peace. It's kind of like that word joy. And you go, how can I feel joy in all situations? Well, joy doesn't mean happiness. Okay? Just like peace doesn't always mean that life is easy or, or simple. Or maybe even sometimes it's not even, it doesn't even feel that good. But this peace that we feel it comes down from Father above. Or maybe it feels like it's coming from here. Because that's where he lives. And so that song captures that so well. It says, peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit. I mean, it just comes over you. Over my spirit forever, I pray. Okay? And fathomless billows of love. I just love that. I love These songs are amazing. And a little later in the summer, we're going to pick some of our favorite hymns. And we're going to do a, a quick study because they're all written by people. Okay? People like us. Some of them are artistic. Well, I'd say they all are artistic, but some may have produced a lot of songs. Some of them may have written a poem that were put to words. Some of them may, this may be the only thing they ever wrote. And here we are, decades or hundreds of years later, listening to this song. And a, you know, a famous one that was, was done was, It Is Well With My Soul. And I won't go to that story now, but as a man who suffered great loss multiple times, and, and he wrote this song. It is well with my soul. And we're going to look at some of our favorite hymns and the stories behind them, the stories that we, they tell. They're just, it's amazing. I just love it. Now, I, I love music, so I'm partial to that, but there's so much good that comes from singing these hymns. So, but on this, the third Sunday of a new message series, we continue to look at the relationship between God the Father and us who are his children. You know, we began this study how God the Father wisely manages his strong-willed children. Last week, we studied the rules he has set forth for our lives and why these rules and following them are so important. And if you didn't have a chance to hear them, they're online in a, a couple of different podcasts. Um, and this week, you know, we've got a lot of traction. A lot of people are listening to the podcast this week, and I know when attendance is down, it seems to be up, but listen to them. There's, they're out there for you to hear, and I listen to them again because I forget what I say, and... I often speak about things I need to hear. I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you, and we'll get to that in a minute. But this week we're going to talk about the lessons that God wants us to learn as we mature in our faith and we prepare for what comes next. And a particular interest, we're going to discuss where we go for the information that we need to learn these valuable lessons. But first, you know, what does come next? So let's see what we can learn from God's Word. Jesus told us in John 14, too, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You see, in this passage, Jesus tells that there is a place for us in God's house, which is heaven. A place that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare. So what is heaven like? This is, a, this is congregational participation. What do you think heaven is like? Peaceful. Peaceful, okay. Peaceful. Peaceful. What else? Really nice golf course with low t green fees, maybe, if that's your thing. Large buffets with zero calories, if that's your thing. What is, what is it like? What do you think heaven's like? My understanding is that they give you a choice. Okay. You, you don't have no food or you can eat the food. Uh -huh. I'm for the food. You're for the food. <laughs> yeah. I will see you in the buffet line in heaven, Rena. Okay. And it's it's like you hear one voice, but yet there's so many, many, many voices. Uh -huh. But you all tuned in together. Okay. Yeah. Like like a choir that actually yeah. sounds good together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
and, and that may be heaven for you. I mean, that, I mean it, that may literally be what it is, and for you that may be what your picture of paradise is. You know? I get to see my son. And you get to see your son. Yes. yes, all those that went before us. Absolutely. Reunited with them. But 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, and he says, But as, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So whatever you think heaven is like, no matter how good or awesome you picture it, the choir, the buffet, the, the golf course, whatever it may be, it's going to be better. It's going to be better than you can imagine. It's, the scripture says, whatever you can imagine, it's going to be better. It's almost like that scripture that says, whatever you measure you use, whatever, how much you think you can love or forgive, I'm going to pack it down and it's going to be overflowing in your lap. That's how much. And he's saying, whatever you can imagine heaven is, it's going to be better. Because no eye has seen it. No, no ear has heard it. No man can even imagine how good it's going to be. And scripture promises this. This is one of God's promises to us. So it's hard for us to imagine what heaven is really like or what Jesus may possibly do, be doing to prepare for us. Rena, he's probably up there making omelets for our buffet, right? Or turning down the air conditioner, making beds. That's the kind of servant leadership Jesus did. Whatever that may be, Jesus is up there preparing heaven for us so that he and his father can receive us. And scripture does make some general descriptions from Hebrews eleven sixteen, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Scripture says that all things are new in heaven. It says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. New and fresh and clean and, and nothing like what we've experienced. And you've heard this often, there are no tears or pain in heaven. Revelation 21, 4 says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall not be any more death or sorrow or crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things, again, have passed away. And that's a comfort. If, if you're in a life of pain or discomfort, especially if you're dealing with an illness, paradise and, and heaven for you is a place without pain. If you're, if you're troubled in your soul and you're hurting and you're crying and, and you miss your son, Rena, it's a place without sorrow. But notice that God used the word shall. And we studied this last week. The importance of using the word shall. Last week it was in regard to the Ten Commandments. You shall not. And he chose that same precise word of authority and commandment in this context. He said you shall not. It's not you shouldn't. I advise you don't kill. He's saying you shouldn't kill. And he's saying there, there shall not be any more pain. There shall not be any more sorrow. God's got rules for heaven. And it gets rid of all this junk that makes this life so bad at times, right? His voice says, you shall not murder. And he says, there sh you shall not have any more pain with the same wording and the same authoritative command. It's as if this is a continuation of his rule. On earth, you won't do this or this or this. But in my house, in God's house, in my house, I will not allow pain. I will not allow sadness or suffering because it's my house and my rules. This is God talking. That's my God voice. In heaven, perfect and selfish love governs everything. Psalm 103, 19 through 21, the inhabitants of heaven obey God's commandments of love. So here we are on earth dealing with sorrow and death and pain. We know we should be obeying God's commandments. We start with the 10 that we studied last week and go on and include loving absolutely everyone without condition, right? And at the same time, we're called to be prepared for an eternity in heaven. 
which is this place of fulfillment and perfection of all these commandments. And it's where God is. So how do we get there from here? And I don't mean, how do we get to heaven? I'm not saying, how do we die? I mean, how do we get from where we're at now? How do we accomplish this? This learning, this preparation, this maturing, this has got to take place between where we are here and where we're going to end up there. Well, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, it's in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, we find this answer. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This tells us that grace is perfected in weakness. What does that mean? It means that the true power of grace to overcome our faults really kicks in and closes that gap between who we are and who we are called to be. The more off the path you are, the more grace you need, the more amount of grace, the more power that God puts into your life to cover that gap. But I want to warn you, we're still called to be obedient to God's commandments and Jesus' teachings. If we rely solely on grace to perfect us, and we aren't making ongoing, genuine efforts, we aren't just falling short, we're outright failing. Okay, And that is sin. God the Father wants to spend an eternity with you, and he delights in this. And that feels awesome, doesn't it? God wants you to join him in heaven, this wonderful place that you can't even imagine. He wants to. For every one of us, it is our hope that we receive this gift of eternal life with our Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ, who is with him. Not just because of the wonderfulness that the Bible describes, not because of the wonderfulness that we try to manage to be, but because of the simple fact that heaven is where God is. Being in his presence is the goal, not just getting to this place. So heaven or paradise, whatever you want to call it, it is what it is because it's of who is there. And God loves each and every one of you. And hey, I think you're pretty cool too. We should all look forward to heaven and being there together, but there's work to be done here first. Philippians 1.21, we find these words. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now I'd heard that about a dozen times and I just kind of, that one, it still puzzles me. To be completely honest, once I felt like I understood it, I still want to change the wording in my mind to make it clear for me to comprehend. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And I did what I people are tempted to do. I looked at other translations and paraphrases and it uses about the same word every single time. So I have to, in my mind, reverse this and say, heaven is awesome. It is better. It is a gain over life on earth. However, while on earth, we should live as Christ lived, in obedience, in love, and with the servant's heart that seeks God and lead others to do the same. And we have a lot of educators and former educators in a congregation, but anyone answer this. When you want to get an assurance of, or at least a measurement of how much information you actually understand, what do you do? I see your mouth moving. I'm going <laughs> to welcome. Now speak up. You give a test. You give a test. It's horrible. It's awful. But it's the best way. We are tested regularly, both to measure and to increase our knowledge. How well do we understand and how well are we applying the lessons that are taught to us? And what do we need to, to study more in order to get to that next level of knowledge that we seek? Now, I do want to be clear because that word test, it's, it's not a comfortable word. Yes, God does test us, but he doesn't tempt us. And there is a huge difference. 
Your loving Father wants you to learn and to grow and to succeed, even if you have to endure some not-so-pleasant lessons or consequences in order to do so. Do you remember when I talked about risky prayers? I'm not saying be careful what you pray, but sometimes there's this risky prayer that says, God, increase my faith. Okay. Let's see how you handle this, because it's going to take a little more faith. God, teach me patience. Okay, I'm going to back up some of the traffic on I-70, so you're just a little slower to get to work. Yeah, I don't think he actually says those things, but these risky prayers where you say, teach me patience, teach me to be compassionate, help me to understand the plight of this. How do you do that? You live among it or you experience it. These are risky prayers. When you say, God, I generally want to grow in this way, you run the risk of going through some stuff that may not feel so good at the time, but you're so much better for doing it. And God, who doesn't delight in your pain or suffering, does delight in your growth. Now, God may test you or allow you to be tested, but he does not lead you into temptation. That's part of our, part of our uh, Lord's Prayer, right? He does not create a sinful circumstance for you. We seem to be able to do that enough for ourselves, right? But Scripture promises that he will provide a way out of it. When what happened, whatever it was, when that happened, did you experience a consequence? Did you learn a lesson? You know, did you apply that lesson the next time so that just maybe you didn't allow yourself to get back into that same situation again? Or maybe you had just a little more hope because you knew you could get out of it or get through it or God was there. So if so, let me ask you this next step in faith. Have you converted that knowledge to wisdom? Have you taken what God wanted you to hear and put it in something that you use? If you have a good job. If you haven't, and you find yourself in a cycle of sin, don't be discouraged. Ask your father for help. Find a trusted accountability partner from among your friends and try again. And repeat as often as necessary. God says, I will forgive you and forgive you and forgive you. The only thing that breaks that cycle of forgiveness is when we stop asking for forgiveness. From our side, we are in complete control of that. God's ready and willing. Just don't give up trying. <clears throat> And it's easy to think about these big, ugly things, right? This, this horrible sin, and, and perhaps you don't struggle with that kind of sin in your own mind. But, but don't forget, there are 10 things specifically listed that God himself said you shall not do. And if you're thinking in your mind, well, that's not me. I don't have the same problems as so-and-so, or I'm not perfect, but what I do pales in comparison to what so-and-so does. Well, my friend, sin, self-righteousness are no-nos too. Now, I'm currently working towards an advanced degree in divinity, and I'm at a point where I have to answer some essay questions, so talk about tests. Let me share a few of them with you. Number one, the Old Testament says God hates the sinner, and the New Testament says God loves the world. How do I hold both of these at the same time? Number two, how do my prayers move a sovereign God to act? Do they move a sovereign God to act? And sovereign meaning God's independent of us. So do my prayers make a difference? Number three, how can I trust a God who claims to be good and yet allows genocide and other bad things to happen? And these are good questions, right? Four, how does the incarnation affect the doctrine of atonement? Well, there's some churchy words, right? Does the communion of the Trinity have any effect on the communion of saints? How about five, what does church look like? Since we are the church, in what sense do we go to church? Good questions. I'll be honest, of the five of them, three at least are ones we kind of wonder anyway, right? How does this happen? How do, what good is it to pray? And they sound like difficult, thought-provoking questions. I'm like, this is good, meaty stuff. But here's the good thing. They aren't. 
the answers are written in the study guide right here. The same study guide we look at every Sunday during service and hopefully in between. I'm not being asked for my opinion on these five tough questions. I'm being asked to report the facts. And the facts are in print right here. Right here. It's an open book test. The easiest way for me to fail these questions is to try to answer them on my own. To give my opinion. And the easiest way for me to fail as a pastor is to not answer the questions and to not share those answers with you. The easiest way for me to fail as a Christian is to not allow myself to be changed once I find the answers to these questions. And you're all getting the same test. Are you seeking the answers? What are you doing with that? Are you sharing what you've learned? Are you letting it change you? These are the tests of life. And you see there's some other big questions people want to know. Everyone wants to know the answers to questions like these. And a few others like, why am I here? What's my purpose? You're God's creation. If you want to know why something is made, you don't ask the thing that was made. You ask the maker. So ask God. And again, it's an open book test. And the only way that I can fail is to not read the book. Now, how simple is that? There's no changing the rules like we talked about last week, that little funny video about the rules of baseball. Nothing is subject to opinion unless we decide to arrogantly interject our own in lieu of God's own word. The trick is to know what to study. Let me share a story with you. This may or may not be a pastor story, which means it may or may not have happened exactly like I'm telling it. But bear with me. And for you people who listen online, you should come to church because there's a visual, right? So advanced biology in college, Missouri State University. And I was at the point where a lot of people get, which is you know for the final what you have to get to get the next letter grade. And if it seems unreasonable, you just kind of study the bare minimum. Well, I knew I was close to getting that A in biology. And so I studied and studied and studied and studied and studied. I could tell you the kingdom phylum class, genus species, all that of all these things. And I walk in there and the professor comes in and he takes a table and he has four brown bags upside down and he puts them on the table and he lifts them up just enough to show the ankles and feet of four different birds. I assume they were birds, okay? And he says, your test in its entirety is to identify these four species by their feet. And I said, this is ridiculous. I studied and studied and studied nothing like that. I didn't know to study that. And I said, I stood up and I said, this is ridiculous. I paid good tuition money. My parents paid good tuition money for me to be here. I'm paid for my kids, so it all works out. And I have more kids than they do. I paid good tuition money to be here. And this is stupid. I studied and I know the material, I know the book, but I don't know this. And he said, young man, what is your name? And I said, you're so smart, you tell me. <laughs> for you at home I pulled my pant legs up and showed my feet <laughs> now aren't you glad that we don't have a God like that but isn't that the society we live in it seems like so many of the rules and answers to questions are subject to the opinions or judgments or decisions of the masses do you want proof look at what is considered normal or funny when you watch television or keep the TV on late enough to watch the news and compare what's happening now and how people are treating each other or how we're, um, and compare that to how we're called to behave. Heaven is going to be so much different. It's just a shame that the difference seems to grow larger and larger every day. But again, an open book exam is only helpful if you're using the right book for your answers. God says, here's a book with everything you need to know. Just read it and understand it. And if you have questions, just ask. Jesus knew this. 
we see how he used it during his life and his ministry on earth. And he quoted scripture often, even when he used his own words or parables to further the lesson. But he often started with a term like this, you've heard it said. And he would repeat words from the Old Testament, from the Bible, right? He would say, this is what God said, you've heard it said. Jesus literally taught God's lessons and shared God's wisdom. And he certainly made a great impact by living according to the word, following the commandments and teaching with full obedience, just as you were called to do, and just as I was called to do. So let me conclude with this thought. Life is a test, and we are taught lessons. We are tested on them, and our lives are examined for admission to God's house, a place that I remind you, your Savior Jesus Christ has gone ahead and prepared for you because he desires and expects, he expects you'll be joining him there someday. Now, I don't know if, you're exper if you experience test anxiety, if that makes you nervous, where just the thought of being watched or examined creates uneasiness. But I want to remind you some good news. It's an open book exam. And never before in history have you been able to take this and carry it around on something like this. Okay? It's as easy as turning on your phone and looking at a verse now or grabbing the Bible. In fact, I want to, I want to encourage you to do something this week. Okay? I want you to spend five more minutes than you normally do. And if it's zero, then now you're doing five. And if you were doing half an hour, now you're doing 35 and spend five minutes just reading the Bible. Anywhere you like, but if you want a pointer, if you want to read a little bit about Jesus, I love the way Luke wrote. And he's easy to find. Here's an old trick from Sunday school. Split the book in half, you have Psalms. Split it in half again, you've got Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, there you go. That's a great one. Or any of Paul's letters, you know, Corinthians and, and Romans, and these Paul's letters, these are hand, well, handwritten letters, yes. They're written letters to an early church and so many of these good pieces of wisdom that we use in our sermon and how we, how we should be living our life, they're in these letters. Spend five minutes reading one of these letters and it's very interesting and there's so much good wisdom in there and then apply it. That's my prayer for you this week. Let's pray. Father God, some words have meanings which, which bring us trouble, temptation, testing, just worry, anxiety. God, you've come, overcome the world. Not only that, but you've given us an instruction book. You've given us a list of infallible rules that are firm and concise and unchanging, just like you. God, the target does not move. We just need to continue to try again and again. Father God, I thank you for the word you've sent. The multiple authors and the multiple languages all put together with one common theme. God, help us to remember that this is the instruction book for life. And this life, which is a test, has all the resources we need right there. And when we get confused or just need a, a little help. Help us to ask you the question and to turn for accountability from our friends. God, as always, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to meet here in this building. And although we're few in number this week, we ask that you continue to be with those that are traveling and ill. God, we lift up all the prayer requests and the joys from earlier in the service. God, we thank you that we have this beautiful building and the grounds that surround it. We thank you for the creation of this earth. God, we thank you 
for the reminder that the empty places in the pews serve, that there's room for you and your room for more people in your house. God, help us to be welcoming and inviting. Help us to take what we've learned and model it by example and continue to bless us in all we do. Amen.